Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian Mesa. My name is Aaron Bennett. And my name is Justin McCartney. And we are thrilled to have you back. This is our final episode of the semester. Sad. sad. You. Yeah, very sad. Uh, so we hope you enjoy. Uh, we think we have an amazing episode. We have an awesome guest. His name is David Litt. He is um, one of the most successful young people I've ever met. He was writing speeches in the White House at age, what, 23, 24? Uh, yeah, our age, basically. Our age. Uh, and has just done amazing things since. So we're super excited to have him in on the episode today. More annoyingly, he's way funnier than any of us are, which is just like very frustrating from a personal standpoint. But also one of the funniest people to ever like grace our podcast. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, we were really excited to have him on. He not only told plenty of fun jokes and stuff like that and had us laughing, he also just had an amazing track to get to the White House. Um, the stories that he tells about like being in the room with the President Obama and, and writing those kind of speeches is just something that's really, really cool. But first, we'll make our final plea for the year. Please subscribe, share us with your friends, give us a holiday present here at Fly on the Wall. <laughs> And uh, share us with everyone you know, because we want to be big and famous someday. So make sure you get out our name. Help us out there. Twitter, Facebook, Insta, all the things. We also have our year-end review out um, for our Season 2 recap. Um, that has been shared on our social media. We'll like push it out again this week and throughout break. So give us your feedback. Let us know who you want to see on the pod, what you want us to change for next semester, next season, excuse me, all that fun stuff. Do it. You have to. It's required now. All right. Getting into our first segment for the week, uh, our tweet of the week comes to us from Matthew Miller uh, on Twitter. His tweet. Six months ago, I asked the smartest Dem Senate strategist where the three seats to win the majority back were. Quote, Nevada, Arizona, and an act of God got the hardest one first. You can imagine when that was tweeted uh, at the time of this recording last night, Tuesday night, um, after Doug Jones won the special election Senate seat in Alabama. Um, obviously a very unexpected win for him and for Democrats to pick up a seat in what has traditionally been deep conservative Alabama. Fun fact, uh, Justin and I, number one, had a very difficult time studying for our congressional politics yeah. final. Uh, and we walked into our final and this morning our professor looked at us um, and I was like, you know, professor it was very difficult to study for our exam last night. And she goes, yeah. And she's a she's like an expert on the field. Obviously, she follows congressional politics like way more than anyone I know. And she said, yeah. I definitely was not expecting that <laughs> um, in the dry humor that only Professor Swears can deliver. So. Let's just hope that didn't affect our performance on her final. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> so let's jump into the gear grinding topic for today. Um, personally, my gears are ground by being sick and it being winter and there being finals. But Aww. let's open up a broader conversation. <laughs> what grinds our gears about political jokes? Christian, you're up first. Well, why do I have to go first? Because you set the topic. I set like four topics. Fine. I'll go first. <laughs> what grinds my gears about political jokes? Um, let's see. First of all, I generally appreciate political jokes. So I'm just going to put that qualifier out there. Um, although, all right, here's what grinds my gears. Sometimes they can pull a little too much just satire and like face value stuff off of issues. Um, which I understand is completely fun. And again, I appreciate when they make fun of like candidates or congressmen or presidents or stupid policies and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of weird to think that like, oh yeah, all this stuff is actually really important at the same time and like affects how people live their lives and like how the country's going and stuff like that. So while it's a lot of fun to laugh at, it's also very serious stuff sometimes. 
a lot of people do a really great job striking that balance, like David Litt. Some people don't always do a great job striking that balance, and that's what grinds my game. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because, I mean, there's, like, only so far that a certain joke can go, and mostly jokes don't affect, like, millions of Americans. Um, <laughs> for me, what's difficult about political jokes is to, like, pick a certain medium and like there's no real amazing medium in which political jokes can be delivered mm. i mean uh our guests might disagree with me but i actually don't think stand-up is really the greatest way for a political joke to be had because i think it doesn't really spark a discussion um and i think humor in a lot of ways is meant to make people think um and make people have a conversation and make people have a dialogue um i know this sounds really dumb but in in a lot of ways i think memes actually do that um, and I think there are like certain like, I know, I know this sounds a little ridiculous, but I think there are certain like photo memes that like, while absolutely ridiculous, get people having a conversation about maybe the more ridiculous things about politics and things that maybe we take it face value or maybe things that we take as, you know, for granted before we realize that actually that's kind of a ridiculous idea. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, certain mediums of jokes do that really well um, and others don't. And this is why I don't think Twitter is maybe the greatest place to have uh, a dialogue in joke form. Speaking of political memes, hold on, I got to give the shout out. Go check out Paul Ryan's um, The Night Before Taxmas meme. It's not even a meme, but it's become a meme on Twitter. You'll, you'll thank me. Don't worry. So I was actually reading an interesting article yesterday uh, about why politicians aren't that funny uh, and why some of their jokes <laughs> tend to fall flat. It's actually really interesting because... They dive into the cognitive science of it. And essentially, when you're a politician, you are striving to talk to a broad audience, right? Like you're trying to reach as many people as possible. But jokes inherently rely on knowing your audience intimately. And, you know, jokes that may resonate well in our apartment among us roommates don't necessarily resonate as well if I'm talking to someone I don't know as well or doesn't get the context of the inside uh, nature of the humor. So that's why oftentimes the jokes just go for the lowest common denominator and just ended up being really bad. And an, an example that uh, this article pointed out was when Hillary Clinton said, Pokemon go to the polls. Mm. And it was just painful to see that that was a pathetic attempt at a joke. So I think that's, that's why politicians and jokes don't always mesh, just because, you know, when you're a politician, you're trying to find something that resonates with everyone. Um, and jokes typically aren't the best medium for that which is why you need expert joke tellers, kind of like people like David Litt. Nice. Well, that's the interesting <laughs> thing, too. David. Like, when you're David Litt writing a speech for the, the um, White House Correspondents' Dinner, it's a very particular crowd. That's true. That's there. You know, they're all up in politics. They're all journalists or, or celebrities, well-informed, and you can write jokes tailored to that specific crowd. So, you know, it's a, a unique challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, too, and this kind of gets into who we're talking to today, but uh, essentially David Litt was Obama's, I think the way he described it at one point was funny guy um, for uh, the Obama White House. And essentially what that meant is he had the job of writing a lot of either the lower speeches that maybe didn't get a lot of the press or he had the job of writing a lot of these, you know, jokes or joke speeches um, that the president would give throughout his years. Um, And I think it's interesting because I feel like anytime you write a joke, you think, who's this going to anger? Um, and that's like one thing for like me, 20 year old Christian Mesa, who has like <laughs> X amount of friends. But when you're the president of the United States, like if you anger a certain group of people, that might be reelection, you know? Um, so I think that's a really interesting concept to think about going forward. Uh, so we're going to talk to David Litt about a couple of very different and very interesting things. 
um, including uh, his work on the White House Correspondence Center, uh, which is, I guess, the marquee joke speech of the year uh, for presidents. Um, and we're also going to talk to him about a little of those smaller speeches uh, that he did that, you know, maybe people don't aren't necessarily going to remember in 50 years, but uh, he certainly well knew. So still certainly given. David Litt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are excited to have you here. Um, Super excited. Yeah, uh, you are our second Obama speechwriter. Um, we had Cody Keenan on quite a while back. Oh, so. great. Uh, for our second episode. God, that was so long ago. Yeah, <laughs> sort of come full circle now, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I guess to start us off, like, walk us through your journey. I mean, you ended up in the White House at an incredibly young age. Um, so talk to us about how you got there um, and how you ended up writing speeches for the President of the United States. So I, I was actually not at all planning on getting into politics. Mm -hmm. When I was a senior in college, I thought that I was going to do comedy. I did um, amateur stand-up when I was about 15. I grew up in New York City, so I used to go to the comedy clubs and do like jokes about not being able to drink yet or whatever. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. There's like got to be a VHS tape somewhere that I would be <laughs> VHS, deeply wow. embarrassed by, but uh, thankfully I have not seen it. But anyway, I thought I was going to do stuff like that. When I was in college, I edited a humor magazine, I did improv, and then um, I interned at The Onion, the comedy mm. newspaper, and was like, this place is really cool, and then it turned out that I wasn't that good at being an Onion intern. It was like, maybe <laughs> this place isn't that cool after what, all. What makes a bad Onion intern? Well, I, I was okay at the interning stuff, but a lot of it was proofreading and catching typos, and I'm terrible at catching typos, <laughs> like okay. truly awful, um, to the point where, you know, when I would write speeches for the president, you, you would think that, like, this is the one place you want to make sure there are no typos. And that's also what I thought. Uh, <laughs> but that didn't stop me from regularly just not catching typos in those speeches. <laughs> so um, I, I was at the and then the other thing is writing onion headlines is a very specific type of writing. Mm. And it's one that I could tell some people were good at, like some of the, the other interns. They seem to be very good at it. It was clearly not for me. And so I had this moment where I was like, maybe this isn't so cool after all. <laughs> And then um, my uh, my first semester of my senior year of college, I applied to join the CIA because I was like, well, if I'm not going to be at the Onion, uh, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I can either write headlines for the Onion or catch Bin Laden. And those are the <laughs> only two career paths I can imagine. And so that was my plan. And the CIA called me and they I don't know why they called me, actually, but they, mm, they said, yeah, exactly. Well, they said uh, they were like have you smoked uh, or have you used any legal substances in, in the last year? And I said, well, actually, uh, you know, I smoked weed two months ago. Um, and that was the end of the interview. They were like, well, we like people who break the rules, but we can't continue. Legally, we can't continue this interview. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Years later, I think what they were really looking for was someone who would lie to the CIA. <laughs> but uh, I, did, I was not that person. I was not about to do that. So It's a fair Fair boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so uh, the beginning, and by the way, I know this is a much longer answer to this question. No, We're going to get through the whole podcast, and I'm going to be like, Do you know, it. and there I was. Um, <laughs> November 14th. <laughs> yeah, two, two years from having done the thing that I'm here to talk about. <laughs> but um, I was on a plane, uh, January 3rd, 2008, and I was watching basically like flipping between ESPNs trying to find a good one, because this was when you had free cable 
you know, the little TV in front of you on the plane. And I stumbled across CNN and Barack Obama had just won the Iowa caucuses and he was delivering his victory speech. And I had kind of had a sense of who Barack Obama was. I saw his speech in 2004 um, for, you know, the Democratic convention, but I didn't really know very much about him. I certainly didn't think he could ever win an election, let alone a presidential election. And by the end of that speech, I was like, you know what, whatever that guy's doing, I want to be a part of that. Wow. Uh, I mean, it really was, it wasn't even that long into the speech. It was, he, he looked at the organizers in the room and he said, you represent that most American of ideals faced with impossible odds. People who love this country can change it. And I was like, oh, he's talking to me. And then millions of people around America were like, oh, he's talking to me. And so by the time that plane landed, it was, it was this amazing thing where everyone had this realization at the same moment. Like, oh, this person's the real deal. And so after I graduated, I volunteered on the campaign in, in school for a couple of months. I graduated in May 2008, and then I got in my car and drove to Ohio, and I worked in, uh, in the field. I was a field organizer in Ohio for about five months. And I moved to D.C. basically thinking, like, hope and change, and that was my plan. <laughs> And I like most, I assume at that time. Yeah. I mean, some people who had been with, uh, with the president, you know, from Iowa from back when they didn't have a shot, there was sort of assumed that they would just, they would have a job in the administration. I never thought I would get a job in the administration, but I showed up and thought, well, there's gotta be something I can do. You know, this is Obama's Washington. I'm going to find my place here. Um, I was the world's worst intern for a while. Uh, (laughs) We can get into that at some point if you want. And then after that, I found a better internship, and also I was better behaved at a place called West Wing Writers, which is a speechwriting firm. And I interned there, and that turned into a job. And I was there for about two years, which is how I learned the basics of speechwriting. And then Valerie Jarrett, who was the president's senior advisor, she was looking for a speechwriter, and she hadn't been able to find anybody. And John Favreau, who was the chief speechwriter at the time, said, you know, if you want, you could be the only applicant for this job. So you could just, like, come work in the White House. And I was like, yeah, wow. that'd be cool. Let's do that. <laughs> sure. um, and so that's how I ended up there. Wow, that long road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. A short period of time, but a long road. So. Right. Well, take us that last step. So you, you get in the White House, you're, you're working for Valerie Jarrett. At what point did, 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 does Barack Obama pick up the phone and call you? And all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you're writing his jokes? Like, how, how did we get there? Yeah, that's right. I was just sitting at my desk one day and I got a call and it was Barack Obama. <laughs> no, um, I was at the White House and I uh, started writing for Valerie and for senior staff. And then I would go sit in on the speechwriting meetings that Fabs would have with the rest of the speechwriting team. And my niche gradually became like Obama speeches no one else wants to write because they're not important <laughs> enough. So I did a lot of weekly addresses. You know, the, the president would give a big speech that week and then we would need someone to cut it down to like four minutes. And no one wanted to do that because it was kind of boring. And I would do that. <laughs> or, um, you know, the president spoke in Puerto Rico for like five minutes. He landed on the tarmac, said some nice things about Puerto Rico and then left. And I wrote the five minutes of things about Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, li- little things like that. But I think doing that a couple of times gave people a sense of like, OK, I can give him this assignment and he won't screw it up too badly. And then I ended up um, my first probably bigger speech was one for the Union uh, of Reform Judaism. They had their uh, their biannual convention, and President Obama was speaking there. And that was one where I basically, I, I emailed Favreau and was like, listen, you know, I've done eight years of Hebrew school. Uh, I feel like I really know these people. <laughs> yes. 
And so sometimes you found those moments where there was something in your personal background that fit a speech and it made it more obvious why you should be the one writing that speech. And then in 2011, um, John Lovett, who is, you know, I imagine a lot of you know from uh, Pod Save America, Love It or Leave It, he was Podcast at, fame. Yeah, exactly. This is the... Uh, yeah, 2017. Yeah, podcast royalty. Um, but before he was podcast royalty, he was running the joke process for the White House. And then when he left to go to Hollywood, there wasn't really a, a funny person. Um, and so I became the token funny person by default. I should say, when I say funny person, I don't mean that no one was funny. I mean like a joke writer. Sure. Uh, and I had had some experience writing jokes, you know, from my... Uh, not so successful onion career <laughs> and that was good enough in dc i feel like you know in dc a comedy background is a very vague term which worked it to my advantage <laughs> always great uh so let's talk a little bit about the white house correspondence dinner speeches i mean i know you had a big part in a lot of those um and you know you wrote a lot of the jokes for that so first off talk to us about how you come up with these speeches i mean like what do you like what's the process for it so the white house correspondence dinner speeches were different than other speeches we would write for a bunch of reasons. Not just the end result, which is that they're supposed to be funny, but the process was totally different. Um, we would start about three weeks in advance. And so for most speeches, except for maybe, you know, like the State of the Union, we'd start way longer than that. But for most speeches I would work on, we'd have about a week. Uh, the Correspondence Center, we'd start about three weeks out. We'd be working with people from all over the country. So former speechwriters, current speechwriters, people, you know, comedy writers from Hollywood, all pitching stuff. And my job was to start by just sending out topics, saying, here's some stuff we think that POTUS is probably going to want to talk about. So let's just figure out as many jokes as we can. Let's just get pitches on the, these ideas. And they would trickle in over a while, and I'd be writing on my own while that was happening. So I'd kind of be contributing as well. And we would usually end up with about 600 jokes. And S yes. 600. Yeah, I mean, you know, that actually came sort of, uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, something that I thought about doing from The Onion, but it reminded me of The Onion, the way they get headlines is they'll get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of headlines, and they'll pick one of those hundred. Um, so there's not, like, the idea that there's just a few brilliant people who are so funny that everything they says is perfect. I have not <laughs> run into those people yet. Um, there's a lot of just brute force. You know, the more ideas you have, the more likely you are to be able to pick out the, the diamond from the rough. And so we would have about 40 that would make it to the president a week out. And we would usually meet two or three times, sometimes four, with President Obama in the Oval Office just going over the jokes. And he would kind of say like, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. Or like, you know, this, I'm not really getting this one. Or a lot of the time he was the one pushing us to be edgier with the jokes, too. Like <laughs> I wrote a joke about Dick Cheney in 2015 that he didn't think was he was like we can do something better here and then in the margins he wrote it's cheney like <laughs> come on and so you know he was he was often pushing us to push the envelope and we would end up with a final draft usually the day before we'd go in generally speaking the day of that morning go over the remarks one more time and then he would make some handwritten edits and i'd put those in the computer and then i would kind of nervously pace around for hours and then watch and you know, try to remember to breathe. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is brought to you by the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, so this year, um, 
well, not this year, but I found this out this year, um, is that Abraham Lincoln is actually in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Um, he used to be a, like, not famous, but, like, well-known wrestler uh, when in his younger years. Um, and he's, like, very much in the Wrestling Hall of Fame because the Wrestling Hall of Fame was only able to find one recorded wrestling defeat in Honest Abe's 300 matches. Hey, guess what? Since you're on the topic of sports, want a bonus fun fact? No. Nick Foles was recruited to play basketball by Georgetown. Do you want another bonus fun fact? No. President Trump deregulated more than Abraham Lincoln did. Why do you both think that my political fun fact <laughs> section is now whoever's political fun fact they can come up with after I state my fun fact? I don't have an answer to that. It just seems to work. <laughs> <laughs> So you made a point about you know Dick Cheney. We can do better than that. How did you know when jokes that you wrote were too far, or when they were striking that right tone? Like, was there some sort of review process, or or, or did you just sort of feel like oh, maybe I can't say that one to the president? There's never a formal review process. And in my book, I do talk about like running a dick joke by the president, not because we <laughs> thought he was going to use it. He clearly wasn't. We were like, this is pretty funny. You get a laugh from him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just let him know we're hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like, this is just, we're all going to enjoy this moment. And, uh, you know, probably not ending up in the speech, but that's okay. But <laughs> For the best. <laughs> yeah, definitely for the best. I mean, there was no, no question about that one. There were other times when we would say, well, let's try it. And he was totally into it. So, for example... In 2013, he told a joke that was, um, this was an earlier time when Republicans were trying to pass immigration reform and kind of broaden beyond their base. And the joke was, one thing Republicans all agree on is they have to do a better job reaching out to minorities. Call me self-centered, but I can think of one minority they could start with. (laughs) And this was, we weren't sure whether we should bring him this joke because it was the first time he had ever referred to himself as a minority, as far as I know, Mm -hmm. in public like that. Um, even in a joke, but there were there was kind of a license in jokes where he could do that, and it wasn't a big deal. Whereas if he had said something and referred to himself as a minority in a serious speech in that moment, it probably would have been a story and just something we would have to reckon with one way or the other. Um, I mean, I remember in 2015, a friend of mine wrote uh, a series of jokes where um, it was after the 2014 midterms. My advisor asked me, Mr. President, do you have a bucket list? And I, or, uh, and I said, no, and I have something that rhymes with bucket list. Um, and then it was like, you know, new climate regulations, bucket. Uh, and we were like, are we really going to show that to the president? I mean, you know, it's not swearing, but it's clearly... It's getting there. It's getting there. And President Obama saw that and he was like, oh, yeah, this is good. Like, he didn't, you know, he, there was never a moment, moment's hesitation. So I will say the stuff we didn't joke about, um, national security was something we wouldn't have joked about. We wouldn't have joked about people's personal appearances or kind of things that you know, we, President Obama made fun of Mitch McConnell. He made fun of Dick Cheney, but there was never a moment he wouldn't have made wouldn't have made fun of Dick Cheney like for having a heart condition, you know, or made fun of, um, uh, for example, every year, generally speaking, and, and I think this is totally fine because it's a comedy writer's job to pitch to be aggressive in what they pitch. But someone would pitch a joke about Chris Christie's weight, and we would never have even shown that to the president because he wouldn't use that because the thing that we found sort of funny or that, you know, maybe we should mock Chris Christie a little bit for, it was not his weight. It was other stuff. I mean, you know, there was a year we, we joked about Bridgegate or something like that. 
but that's different than making fun of someone's appearance. So I think we were trying to be responsible, but in some ways it's the same thing you're doing in any speech. You're just trying to think about who is this person and what would they feel comfortable doing. So one of the classic, you know, uh, President Obama White House Correspondents Dinner speeches was, you know, the Obama Anger Translator. Uh, so talk to us about how you guys came upon that idea. I mean, it seems like kind of an absurd thing and like how you ended up getting there. So talk to us about, you know, what went into that decision and why did you decide that was the best way, you know, to get messages across? So Keegan-Michael Key, who played Luther, Obama's anger translator, he and Jordan Peele had come up with this character on their show years earlier. Right. And President Obama was a big fan of their show, and he really liked the anger translator character, probably unsurprisingly. <laughs> That's and amazing to hear. It's just, I remember it stands out as a moment that just sort of like transcended time and space for me <laughs> to see like fiction and reality sort of come together there. But it's good to hear that he was a fan of the show. Oh, yeah. He had already met them. I mean, they weren't, you know, I think he met them once or something like that. But he was, he he enjoyed this. And we had been thinking for years. I mean, I think in 2012, somebody had said, like, could we do Luther the Anger Translator? But there was an election coming up. So the idea that, you know, uh, Obama was secretly an angry black man was not, (laughs) uh, that seemed like the wrong year for that. (laughs) In 2013, there had just been the Boston Marathon bombing, so we were not going to do something that was kind of big and showy in that way. And in 2014, uh, healthcare.gov had just launched, and that didn't go great. So we, again, we're not going to do something big and showy, but for different reasons. And then in 2015, we were kind of on this roll. The whole vibe of the year, or certainly of the year since the midterms, was like, you know, Obama doesn't give a fuck. So <laughs> that was, it seemed like the perfect time to do it. And right. Uh, luckily Keegan was able to come and, and do it. And so um, what I write about in my book is how we were never really worried about the script, but uh, every time Keegan said anything as Luther in the rehearsal, President Obama could not keep it together. <laughs> like the moment Keegan opened his mouth, POTUS would just start laughing. And, you know, in, in rehearsal, Keegan was like, Mr. President, you know, I'm, I'm taking it easy right now. Like, I'm, I'm going to go there. And right before the actual performance, I was backstage just kind of milling about nervously. And <laughs> President Obama walked back. He was sitting on the dais most of the time eating dinner. Uh, but then he walked backstage and he was like, this is good. The only thing is I can't break, um, which is like the comedy term for, for cracking up in the middle of the scene. And I wasn't sure he was going to be able to do it. And it's not like the most impressive Obama accomplishment that he didn't laugh during this scene, but he he did pull it off. And if you watch his, he's never making eye contact. Like he kept his peripheral vision always a couple degrees away from making eye contact with Keegan. And I think that's how he held it together. Uh, so, so shifting gears a little bit, you talked about how you did the things that no one else really wanted to do on the speech writing team, the little, the small speeches. Um, and in your book, you talk about how you weren't necessarily always in that inner circle. You found that liberating. First, what did you mean by that? That you were you weren't working on you know the headline flashy stuff. So uh, when I said I found it liberating, I meant when I was writing a book. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of really great White House books that are mostly about what it's like to be sort of the person who's right by the president. And you know, I was not the person who was like, "Mr. President, yeah, we should go get Bin Laden." Like that was not my job. Um, and it, I also, you know, I didn't take the lead on the State of the Union or on um, some of the bigger speeches, like the speech President Obama gave after Charleston or Selma. Um, Cody Keenan, who was the chief speechwriter in the second term, worked with the president on those. So I wanted to write a book about what it was sort of like to be everybody else at the White House, 
because there's tons of people at the White House, and most of them, I think, uh, fall into the same category I did, where I don't think American history would be substantially different if I wasn't there. But we went to the White House every day, trying to make America a tiny bit better by just doing our job, mostly by not screwing up <laughs> and sometimes succeeding. And that was just a perspective on what it's like to be in public service and what it's like to be in the White House that I hadn't read about. And that I thought of, you know, when I was 21 and on that plane and thinking, OK, you know, this is what I want to pursue. That was kind of a missing piece of not so much like it was easy to figure out what it was like to be the most important person in the room or the second most important person in the room. But what it's like to be a sort of regular person or what it's like to be starting out in a job like that. So that was where, to me, I could have more fun with it. And also, I didn't feel the need to, like, uphold my legacy. You know, I, right. I could talk about all the times I embarrassed myself in front of the president because it's not like I, I had to check these boxes where I'm telling you about the historic moments that I was involved in. Right. Yeah, so one of those smaller speeches that, that um, you know, I bet a bunch of people weren't super uh, interested in writing, but, you know, sort of had to get done um, was that Thanksgiving speech that you talked about in your book, got a little flack because uh, God was never mentioned, right, in, in among conservative circles. Tell us a little bit more about that, what it was like to, to write something, then look up and be like, ooh, maybe uh, that wasn't as well received. Yeah, it was, so this was one of the first speeches I wrote. It was a video, actually, for Thanksgiving 2011, and it was a very, you know, it wasn't a history-making speech, but it was like a nice, charming, warm, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Like, the, it, it did the thing it was supposed to do, at least I yeah. thought it did. And I was super proud of this thing. I mean, I had never written anything like this before. I was like, I helped the president say Happy Thanksgiving to America. <laughs> this is so cool. And then midway through that Thursday, Fox News uh, ran a piece about how the president had never said the word God in the Thanksgiving address. And, you know, later on, it turned out that George W. Bush left God out of the, his Thanksgiving videos a whole bunch of times too and fox news didn't particularly care about that of course not of no. course not <laughs> but you know it's still my job to make sure this kind of stuff didn't happen and it was strange to watch this sort of completely fake controversy snowball because it w it started with fox news but then like you know the other commentators got involved um you know, one of them called obama a militant atheist because god <laughs> wasn't in the thanksgiving day video it just was this chance to pile on for no reason and then you saw the mainstream media they weren't going to cover it as a controversy because they didn't they knew better, yeah. but they were going to cover the controversy. So in my book, I talked about how ABC News then said Obama leaves God out of Thanksgiving speech. Critics riled up, you know, so then that became the story. And to watch that kind of migrate across the ecosystem. And then at that point, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And also you feel like raising your hand and being like Obama, whether Obama was like totally excited about crediting God in Thanksgiving or not has nothing to do with whether or not it was in the speech. Like, it was a, it was a little video that, you know, I, at 20, I think it was 25, happened to write. Like, this was not, oh, man. why are we drawing big conclusions <laughs> about President Obama's character here? But that's the way it works, you know? And I think one of the things that I ended up learning about doing really any job in the White House, almost everyone I talked to had the same experience, which is you're not... Uh, trying to do your job better than you've ever done it. You're trying to do the job as well as you could do it if you didn't have all the scrutiny and all the pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's what takes so much work, is doing the same job, but just in this incredibly high-stakes environment. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back.
This week's Politico's Azrael People comes to us from the former Vice President Joe Biden in actually what was a really sweet moment uh, earlier this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, where Joe Biden was on The View, um, where Senator John McCain's daughter, Meghan McCain, is a co-host, um, and they shared a really, really sweet moment where Joe Biden talked about all the research his new foundation is doing um, and has been done towards the disease that um, took the life of his son and uh, Senator John McCain, Meghan McCain's father, currently suffers from. Um, so if you haven't seen the video yet, definitely check it out. It's a great moment, regardless of politics, party, anything like that. So next we're going to play you, uh, this is our hot take section. Ooh, all right. Um, so uh, we're going to ask you a question and then play you a little clip from um, someone on campus. Uh, and then uh, if you could respond to the question and his response as well. Okay. Uh, so the question is, uh, why would you choose a profession where your accomplishments and your accolades are never really your own? Uh, and so we asked uh, Matt Riley, who is the president of Georgetown Speechwriters uh, here on campus, uh, to answer the question first and then... Yeah. And yes, that is a real club that we have on campus. Oh, you have a speech the Georgetown club. speech writer. That's, yeah. that's got to be kind of newish, right? Fairly. Because I feel like when I was in college, nobody wanted, nobody, <laughs> you know, was like, I'm going to be a speech writer. I did not think that, that was a well, The thing. Obama White House made them stars, I guess. Yeah, I think that was, it was that and like Sam Seaborn on the West Wing. Anyway, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I'm really, I'm ruining your hot take segment. All right. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I think there are a couple different reasons as to why someone would choose a profession where the, acc the accolades are not their own. And I think one of the primary reasons is that a good amount of people, especially people who want to get involved in politics but don't want to you know, be at the forefront of politics, it's a great way to get involved, make a, a mark in, you know, on something or with somebody that you believe in without taking on the responsibility of living your life as a politician, which I think is an incredible burden and you can see how it affects people. It's, you know, an unbelievable amount of stress. Um, and just to be someone who writes kind of behind the scenes allows you to voice your opinions, whatever they may be and fight for kind of a, a mantra that you believe in, um, without kind of exposing yourself to the scrutiny of the public. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's a really important reason why you might want to work in a more behind the scenes role. Your thoughts. Um, well, I think that's a very good answer. The only thing I'd add to it is, for me, I mean, I came to D.C. thinking I want to do healthcare policy because um, I just thought I want whatever I can do that would help. And I had met people in Ohio who um, had a healthcare emergency in their family and went bankrupt or a lot, a lot of stories like that. So I thought I want to do healthcare policy. It turns out I would be terrible at healthcare policy. <laughs> I'm not suited for it. So to some extent, I ended up doing speech writing just because that seems to be what the universe told me, like, this is a thing you can contribute. So, um, you know, when you if you're a poet, you're really writing for yourself. But if you're a speechwriter, your words are by definition a means rather than an end. I think that's a, a great perspective. And as people who are considering speechwriting careers, or at some point at getting to that point, you know, I think it's an important consideration. You know, offering yourself as you know sort of a vehicle um, for broader change. 
so we have one last segment because I know you have to run to uh, your event in a few minutes, but we have a, a lightning round. We'll ask you questions. We need a real quick answer. All right. Um, so first question, what is the best joke that you ever wrote that got cut immediately? I wrote a joke about uh, legal or decriminalizing marijuana, and it involved Rand Paul <laughs> filibustering on the subject of why the Taco Bell, whether or not the Taco Bell was still open, <laughs> and President Obama just wasn't going for it. So you got that joke. You tried your best. Uh, and second, last one, how do you be the worst intern in Washington? Uh, I began playing Minesweeper about six hours a day and then at some point I began to only answer work-related questions in analogies to the game of Minesweeper I was playing at the time. <laughs> wow. uh, and I thought I was getting away with this, but obviously I was not. And so I almost became like the first intern this crisis communications firm had ever had to fire. Uh, and oh. then I, I groveled my way out of that and stopped being uh, quite so terribly obnoxious and rode out the rest of the internship. Oh, my. The crises yeah, must not have been that bad. riveting. If you were... the, the crises were all riveting, but it was all people who deserved to be in crisis. So it was <laughs> like, I mean, it doesn't justify how I behaved about it, but it was... Uh, it, it, it was not like the Obama campaign. I'll put it that way. Oh, yeah, so you're your okay. own vigilante of who deserves crisis. That's how I thought about it at the time. Let's, <laughs> let's put it that way. Looking it. back on it, I'm not sure that's the word I would use. <laughs> Great. Right. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your stories and, you know, learning a little bit more about, uh, you know, maybe not the biggest names in the White House, but the people who, you know, grinded it out every day, you know, regardless. Yeah, and thank you for, for being here at Georgetown. We're excited to hear about your book. Uh, and if you want to hear more of David's awesome stories, it's Thanks, Obama, by David Litt. Thank you so much. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. Wow, that episode was lit. Am I right? Hey, nice one, Ivy. <laughs> well, thank you, David Litt, for uh, being on the podcast. I think we all learned a lot about the writing process, about what it means to be a speechwriter, how it's not always uh, glamorous and not always uh, the glory you're seeking. You know, there's a little day-to-day stuff that you have to do uh, that no one really talks about. So I thought that was some fascinating insight. And had quite a few laughs along the way. We certainly enjoyed recording this episode. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely one of the more fun episodes to watch or to re- listen to, I guess. And actually, after this, um, I went back and I listened to the Obama anger translator speech. <laughs> and I looked specifically for the fact that the president did not break throughout the entirety of the it's speech. It's impressive. It's really impressive, not to mention the fact that I was like <laughs> laughing the entire time. So I don't know how President Obama did that. Um, but I thought that episode was fascinating, too, because I think it's it's interesting to think about maybe not the communications directors or, you know, the press secretaries of the White House or maybe the chiefs of staff, but to think about the people who work there day in and day out and um, aren't necessarily always in the headlines. Um, And I think uh, David Litt brings a really fascinating perspective. And the value that, like, speechwriting has. Uh, It's really hard, like you guys were saying, and, like, David talked to us about, like, your name isn't on a lot of your work being a speechwriter. It's it's the president's words. It's his quotes, things like that. but like still the special seat at the table that you have and the sort of special influence you're able to have over what the president says and that's kind of unique relationship you have with him. Um, obviously, we know, you know, President Obama is an incredible sp- speaker. Um, he has almost like a cult of speechwriters at the White House um, who have their own podcast now. 
Um, and all really have just incredible insights of what it was like to work with him, to work in the White House, um, to work in that really unique job. Well, that's it from us. I hope you enjoyed uh, the last um, well over a dozen episodes we put out this semester. Yeah, we or did this work. season, rather. Um, from from uh, Ron Bonjean to Mike Dubke to uh, we had a, a Mexican senator on the podcast. Uh, we really we really uh, ran the gamut this semester. We do we've done cool things. You guys should like it if you're still listening <laughs> to this episode. So. Keep listening to us. Um, we're going to be cool, putting out some cool stuff for season three. What? Season three. Season oh, three. I feel old. Crazy. <laughs> Let us know your thoughts. Let us know your suggestions. We always love to hear from you. And we hope you have an incredible holiday season, a great break, and we'll see you in a month. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Every other holiday. Oh my God. Next time we record a podcast, it's true. Wild. It'll be after Martin Luther King Day, too, so enjoy that holiday as well. You know what else will happen by the next time we record a podcast? Star Wars. Star Wars. I knew you were going to talk about Star Wars on this podcast. I was what like, did you expect? Is that where this is going? I was That's like, this is going. I knew. I this is going to be out after Star Wars. Yes. Yeah, I know. Which means they know and we don't. Snake don't tell us. Dumbledore. Don't spoil. Snake kills Dumbledore. <laughs> no spoilers. Um, yeah, Palpatine is behind it all. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a really spicy take that Palpatine is Snoke, mm. and I'm like willing to believe it. I thought Snoke was Plagueis. There's also that theory, oh, but which, no. I read an alternative theory that actually um, Plagueis wasn't like Plagueis was yes killed by Palpatine, but he wanted to be killed because he had already achieved oh, immortality and something like Snoke. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind so, of like the Obi Wan Darth Vader thing. Which yeah, never really explained exactly. So he kind of just like he was okay with being killed and that's why he was killed in his sleep despite the fact that he was like an all-powerful Sith Lord. Spicy. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for Snoke? Uh, I have no clue. Palpatine is super dead. You don't know that. He was like thrown over. To be fair, Anakin burned alive. He ended up Darth Vader. Yeah, but he never fully died. You know, we saw him be rescued. Okay. We could see Palpatine be rescued. In the more miraculous eight. recovery was when Obi-Wan's legs are shattered <laughs> the fight with Count Dooku. Like, he literally should have been severed in half. And he got up and walked away. In spite of all of the, the slightly inconsistencies in the Star Wars series, uh, I always feel <laughs> slight. I always feel justified in talking about the podcast because it's a very political movie series. Do you feel justified? Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I do think Justin brings up a good point and probably a good point to really wrap up. Which this I never season. like understood the first times I watched it when I was a little kid. Is like, there there's so, so much, much in politics this. to the star, especially the prequels, because the prequels are essentially okay. Like consider the opening act of the first prequel. It's like war, trade disputes, right? War, a Senate that's not working, a Jedi Council that is like Separatist far too movement. invested. It's in, all about rebel. It's yeah. um, it's wild. Like makes me. Loki respect Emperor Palpatine that much more. But he's pulling some shady, powerful Mm. political moves. Mm. I have an issue with how he became chancellor. There's like thousands of people in that body. There's no way. Oh, that's an ineffective There's no way he's just like, there's no way he's just like, you know, maybe I should be chancellor and everyone was just on board. No, he he capitalized on the moment. Naboo was the top of the agenda list because they were under siege. And he's like, you know what? I'm in the media right now. I'm going to capitalize and make my political move. It's genius.